this mic stand just drops while I'm preaching, don't freak out. It'll be okay. Just forewarning. It's been giving us problems all morning. All right. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of a rogue Middle Eastern rabbi from a small town that you wouldn't have ever heard of. And this rogue rabbi was born into what could arguably called the most anxious period of the ancient world. Yet, this rabbi finds it completely appropriate to declare to anyone around him that if they would like to find rest, that all they need to do is learn from him and then practice his teaching. What I find more striking about this rabbi is that he walked the streets of this so-called center of the world with an unhurried and composed demeanor, just offering people a break from their normal, hurried, busy lives. This rabbi is answering the questions that we don't want to ask, but he's doing it in a way of inviting us to come and live out the answer. Are you weary? Come practice rest by seeing what I'm all about. Are you tired? There's an antidote for that. You want to know more about this kingdom? Come learn from me. Are you sick of the hurry? Come and find a new way to work and to rest. We're in a sermon series right now on the refreshment of our souls. And the heartbeat that makes this sermon series go is that each week we are highlighting different practices or best ways of finding refreshment in our souls in order to grow in our Messiah Jesus, because he is ultimately the one who refreshes our soul. We've been centering over this idea that comes from Psalm 23. And if you've been around Jesus communities before, you may have heard these best or ancient practices referred to as spiritual disciplines. But regardless of what you call them, they are designed to help us recapture a sense of depth and quality to our relationship with God. This is why we're calling it He Refreshes My Soul, because the practices are always rooted in the person of Rabbi Jesus. So this sermon series is about being refreshed in our souls by the God who cares deeply about where you've been and your experiences, but this is also a way in which, in which we can then receive a fresh reacquaintance with the God of the universe, a sort of get to know God and His ways. And today, I want to acquaint you with the practice of Sabbath. And to do that, we have to ask the very basic question. What is Sabbath? Who is Sabbath for? What exactly is rest? Does the Sabbath actually apply to a single mom working two jobs? What about the newly enlisted soldier or the on-call nurse or the doctor? What about pastors, missionaries, and parachurch ministers who seemingly need rest but find that the work of shepherding is never truly over? What about the engineer, the artist, the teacher, the truck driver, the grocery store worker? Is Sabbath still applicable for them too? Or is Sabbath just a wellness plan for the privileged? Is it ultimately just a life hack to be a better version of yourself come Monday morning? Is Sabbath just the same thing as a day off? Or is Sabbath a cathedral in time? A moment in your week that invites you to participate in the deep and revolutionary power of God's kingdom breaking into the world. 
A day that sets people free, deposits joy into your souls, reminds you of the empty tomb, and shows you there's a scheduled rhythm of Sabbath rest that is actually an act of social justice, resistance, and equity for all God's people. And I want to acknowledge that we as a church body are tired, and it's going to require a whole lot more than good theology to heal the weariness of the human heart. And I know many of your stories, and when I reflect on my own experiences, there's one common thread through our gathering. We are desperate to be released from our busyness and our exhaustion. As I was preparing this teaching, I felt so compelled to think of ways to show you how serious I was about Sabbath rest. And so, I want to give you the most unusual disclaimer that you might ever hear in church. Ready? I invite you to sleep during my sermon. I am 100% serious, and here's why. If you fall asleep anywhere in a public place that isn't an airplane, I would hope that church would be the place, because God's house and body should be a place where people can rest unashamedly in a group of people and practice rest for everyone to see. I'm totally serious. You guys see that camera right underneath there, right there? We're recording this, so you can go back and you can watch this and re-listen to it as many times as you want, because once it goes onto the internet, it will never come back down, which means you can take a nap, you can sleep, you can rest. It's okay, because you will be able to listen to this again, and you will be able to watch this over. So please, sleep if you want, and listen to this later when you have time. But more than sleep, I invite you to cry during my sermon. I want to welcome you to this gathering and let this be a place where you have the emotional and mental space to actually feel something other than busy, rushed, or hurried. I do not have a catchy introduction like I normally do. I don't have a funny punchline or a witty quote. And so here's my intro, and we're just going to get going. My name is Aaron. And I have always been honored to hopefully encourage you with the opportunity to deliver a teaching on these Sunday mornings. And so today we're going to look at Sabbath. And I know that we are a tired community. I know that our world is very tired. And some of you are in deep need of rest. I also need rest. And many beyond these walls are also hungry for rest. So I long for us to be a people of a community of people who don't treat the Sabbath like a wellness plan for the privilege, but actually a way of just being it is undeniably a day, but it is so much more than a day. Without telling you that you must do the Sabbath, I am at the very least convinced that Sabbath is something that will aid you and me as we grow in maturity to become more and more like Him. But it is, at the end of the day, optional. I will not be checking to see if you keep Sabbath. Joel and Julie will not be calling you every day to see if you've practiced Sabbath. But the way I see it, and I don't think that I'm wrong, though I am happy to be wrong, the Sabbath is a rich and vibrant way to practice Jesus' rule and reign and celebrate his resurrection. So whether you're a medical resident, an artist, a mom, a barista, a professor, a student, retired, or a millennial with two jobs, I invite you to ponder, does Jesus have something for you in regard to Sabbath? Does Jesus have something for us in terms of Sabbath, who long for a refreshment deep in our souls. So to acquaint us with Sabbath rest, I've decided to do what I do best, which is to teach people ancient languages and introduce really fun words. So I want you to say hello to your two new favorite Hebrew words, Shabbat and Nuach. 
Now, you might have heard these words before, but I will just reintroduce them to you. Shabbat is the word that is used to signal a ceasing or a stopping or resting. It becomes the regular word to use to describe the Sabbath day that Israel will practice during their existence, but it can also be used to indicate something who is at rest. Nuach tries to capture the same idea, although Nuach has a bit of a nuanced meaning. It means more literally to settle in, to be secure, or to take up residence. And these two words are important because they will ultimately show us how and what humanity is designed for. So let's see how they work in our first text. Just go ahead and listen to the design of the creation story in Genesis. This is how it goes. And there was evening and morning the first day, and there was evening and morning the second day, and there was evening and morning the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. So days one through six seem pretty structured all the way through. But what happens on the seventh day? Genesis 2, 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work, which he had done, and then he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, and then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all of the work which God had created and made. Many things to note here, but first and foremost, have you ever thought how odd it is that the seventh day arrives, but there's no refrain? There's no evening and morning the seventh day. The the design of this narrative makes the seventh day stick out almost like it doesn't belong. However, in Hebrew literature, when something is repeated, even just twice in close proximity, it's almost always the biblical authors leaning and winking and saying, hey, pay attention. This is super important. You're going to want to listen to this. As a pastor, uh, a pastor that I've grown to really love and respect in New York, a brilliant, he has a brilliant way of describing this type of literary genius, and he describes the cadence of Genesis 2, 2 through 3 like this, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7, 7. Do you hear it? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. It's the bold, underlined star, italic, and asterisk all at the same time. It's like the author's trying to tell us that the most important part of the entire creation narrative is that the seventh day is the point. Not to mention that the word for the seventh day is sheva, which can also mean to be complete or to be whole. So when put next to the word for rest, shabbat, it sounds like this, sheva, shabbat, sheva, shabbat, sheva, shabbat. You can kind of hear the wordplay that's going on here. A.J. Swoboda in his book, Subversive Sabbath, has this epic way of describing this phenomenon, quote, In Genesis 2, 2 through 3, this textual feature, and he's talking about the repetition of both words, is utilized to state that the seventh day is the goal of creation. The climax of creation is not humanity, as we have so arrogantly assumed. Rather, the day of rest is the climax, when creation all comes together and lives at peace and harmony with one another. Sabbath becomes the culminating roof of the entire house of of God's creation. God created humanity in his image and sets us to work, yes, but then immediately gives us the stage of which we are to then live out our work. Creation is about rest, 
about wholeness, about completeness. And to be sure that this isn't something that I made up or a theological conspiracy, the writer of Genesis goes on to describe a complementary narrative of the creation of God's good world, and the author includes a very small detail about how humans are to interact with the whole creation. Genesis 2.15 says it this way, Then the Lord God took the human and put the human into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, here's what's cool. You see how I underlined the verse or the, the word put? You actually already know this word because I taught you already. And I'll give you a hint. It's actually not Shabbat. It's Nuach. God Nuached the human in the garden. He rested them in the garden. God's intended design for humanity is that they would work out of a place of rest. Humans are designed from the very beginning of creation in God's wisdom and intended design to work from a place of restfulness. How cool is that? This is why the author of Genesis uses both Shabbat and Nuach together, one for each narrative. They give the reader a complimentary view of what, if, of what it means to be human. They are to work and keep the temple garden, but also enter into a seventh-day rest. Do you also notice that the lack of refrain in seventh day means that the seventh day is not going to end? In rabbinical tradition, this meant that God's personal presence fills the entirety of creation on the seventh day, and the land provides for all the creatures and the humans to rule with God endlessly. One, two, three, four, five, six, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. It's the way that God says that the seventh day rest will not end, or at least it's not supposed to end. And this, friends, is what you and I are created for. But as good as this is, our story takes a dark turn in Genesis 3. And here's the picture. There's this snaky creature who is interested in convincing the humans who are already in the image of God, resting in the fullness of the garden blessing, leaving nothing else to achieve. They don't need anything. And the, God, and the snake suggests to them that there's actually more that they need to strive for. There's more they need to work for. That God is holding out on them and the way to deeper, higher, more transcendent life is to take from this fruit and then to eat it. Now, is what the snake says true? No. The narrative is written in a specific way to show you that whatever this creature is, is saying something that's antithetical to God's promises and blessing to this point. So the humans take the fruit and then they eat. Now, here's what I've noticed about church and art and teachings and even certain Bible studies. They always assume that the fruit is an apple. Here's the problem. Apples are not the most common fruit in the Middle East, and they have never been the most common fruit in the Middle East. Any guesses to what the fruit might be? Figs? Figs are good. That's close. It's actually a pomegranate. It's a pomegranate. So just think with me for a second. How many of you have eaten an apple? How many seconds does it take from tree to teeth? Like one, right? You, you pick it, and then you eat it. How long, how many of you de-seeded a pomegranate before? How long does that take you? <laughs> that takes you upwards of 20, 30 minutes if you're trying to get it perfect and get every seed. So just think about this. The humans are persuaded in their own minds to believe that their wisdom is better than God's, and so they sit down, pomegranate in hand, and spend a half an hour probably de-seeding a pomegranate. 
Now, it's kind of funny to imagine, but think about how persuaded you have to be to spend 30 minutes of doing meticulous work that God told you you don't have to do. You're working out of frustration and ignorance, and many rabbis and scholars believe it, that is in this moment that taking of the fruit is when the posture of work and rest are completely broken. This is the thorns and the thistles that God said will become true of the earth because we are convinced that in order to find true rest, we need to work harder, exploit the earth and everything in it, refusing to take a break or yield to God's wisdom. The extracurricular work that God said would bring death by eating of the fruit becomes a symbol of how humans are fundamentally bent towards obsessive work and dismissive of the rest offered by God. In fact, this theme actually becomes one of the driving concepts of the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Our writers of the Old Testament provide us with actually four snapshots, huge mega narrative snapshots about what happens when humans overwork, ignore rest, exploit others for their quest of power. And one of those is actually maybe a familiar story to you. It's actually Pharaoh's Egypt in the book of Exodus. And here's the cool part. It's on the first page. So you can just hit the table of contents, go to the first page, and there's the narrative. You don't have to go digging for it in the middle of that huge book that you have. It's just on the first page. And Pharaoh's Egypt goes a little bit like this. Enslave a people group. Make that people group work with no day off, attempt to degrade their concept of identity to be nothing more than you are lazy. Yes, that is what you are, end quote. And they force this subhuman people group to build a city for all the excess stuff that doesn't fit in Pharaoh's palace and also doesn't fit in the storage lockers down by the Nile. It's a terrible day if you are an Israelite. But it's not too bad if you're an Egyptian because your city's growing. It's flourishing. There's so much excess that the leader of the country has to build more storage cities. Do you see how this is the complete inverse of Genesis 1 and 2? The writers of the biblical story are framing these two ecosystems side by side. So when you page back and forth and back and forth and realize Eden, well, that Egypt is the inverted Eden world. Look how Pharaoh's rhetoric mirrors that of the snake in Genesis 3. Oh, do I not have that? Oh, I'll just read it to you. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or else they will multiply, and and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us, fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict hard labor, and then they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pitom and Lamases, end quote from Exodus 1, 10, and 11. So what does God do with humans inverting his good world for endless work? God takes the evil system and he turns it back on itself. Not because he's avenged, not because he's vengeful, but because God wants more for humanity to restore them to seventh day rest. And he's chosen to do this through Israel. Just as God contains the and orders the chaos of the unformed world in Genesis 1, so God will contain and order the chaos of any anti-Eden empire in existence. A few chapters later, the Israelites are liberated, and for the first time, everyone is able to taste the release from hard labor and slavery as they are now covenantally bound to Yahweh, their God, at Mount Sinai. And now that Israel is free, God calls them while they're in the wilderness to start practicing the seventh-day rest. So why, why do this? What's the reason that Israel is to practice seventh-day rest? Here's Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath 
of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son. Or your daughter, I had to make sure that we had the right one, or your daughter, or your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, your cattle, your sojourner, anyone who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You must remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. God's reason that Israel should rest is because everyone in the new community of freshly liberated ex-slaves gets a chance, an opportunity to come into the family of God. And Moses is clear to point out that even the animals and the non-Israelites who don't give a shekel about Sabbath are given the opportunity to rest. If Israel is designed for worship through restfulness as God designed, then Sabbath is their first assignment. It is the way in which Israel is to enter back into the God-given design for identity, vocation, and wisdom. Stop. Cease. Take a break. This is an essential part of your worship, O Israel. Why? Because it includes a celebratory moment in the middle of your week to act as if the world has returned back to Edenic conditions. Becoming God's people means conforming to the way which God intended to rule through us and re-Edenize the earth. How's that for a mission statement? Re-Edenize the whole world through a people group, people like you and people like me. Therefore, Sabbath is not just a day off. It's not designed as a catch-up for chores. It's It's not a wellness plan for the privilege. It's God's redemption plan for the whole world. It's an act of worship. Sabbath is now an equal opportunity for the metal worker and for the tent maker, for the business executive and for the janitor who mops the floors of that business. No one will be marginalized or intentionally forgotten in this new community because you are not like Egypt because you're made for more. And you will become a light for the nations and you will do so by resting on my holy day, says the Lord." And this is all fantastic, but the obstacle that Israel is going to face as soon as they leave the wilderness and get to the promised land is that even all up to the moment Jesus takes his first breath is that they will be tempted to forego this identity and vocation and experience in Egypt will get lost because they'll opt for an existence to secure their own identity by power and it will look a whole lot more like Egypt than it will look about God's intended design. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says that there's a certain amnesia that prosperity can bring through consumption, production, and anxiety lived against God's design, and that amnesia breeds hostility to the idea of Sabbath and consequently God's kingdom. So, let's return to Matthew 11, 28 and 30 and see if any of what we just read helps us understand what Jesus is saying when he says, come to me who are weary, I will give you rest. So, just for the sake of it, we'll reread this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the more peculiar things to note about the, this Matthew 11 section is that there is actually no audience mentioned 
If you go back and look through, there's no like, and the crowds were there, the disciples were there. And if you ask me, why is there no audience? I would tell you it's because Matthew is trying to highlight that this right here, Jesus' words about Sabbath, are timeless and stand above the narrative. A boundless, unhindered, timeless invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. But what kinds of rest is Jesus actually talking about? Was he affirming that the Sabbath day on the seventh day needs to be upheld exactly like it says in Torah? Was he subverting the Sabbath and saying that it was useless and that he was inventing a brand new way to connect with God on the weekends? Evidence suggests that Jesus actually stands in a long line of Jewish tradition that was tasked with ensuring that the synagogues and the temple made a very clear message to all of those who follow God, namely, exile will end and the ultimate Sabbath rest and the ultimate jubilee will arrive. And we know this is the case because Jesus is actually quoting in this section, just with Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, from six different sections of the Old Testament, and they're all jammed into two verses. How does he do it? I don't know. I really don't know. And all of these six references are directly related to one idea, and I'll give you a hint. It's not about money. It's not about sex. It's not about sacrifice. It's not about the temple, and it's not even about the Passover. It's about sacrifice. It's about Sabbath rest. And what this tells us is that Jesus is not simply inventing a new way of relating to God and throwing off all the Jewish customs that he was raised on. It tells us that Jesus is deeply rooted in the story and reality of the inbreaking kingdom of God. So the idea here to take a yoke upon. Let's talk about that. This was a common rabbinical idiom that was an analogy used to describe Torah or the Old Testament. Rabbis would teach their students and protégés who would be in charge of shepherding future uh, congregations through the Middle East to take upon the yoke of Torah and learn from it. Jesus, being the debated figure that he always seems to be, says something very unlike the rabbis of his time, instead encouraging people to take the yoke of himself. He's saying that you should come and take his yoke upon you because he's gentle, because he's humble, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's essentially saying that Torah is now finding its fully realized point, a relationship with God. And this relationship is characterized by a God who is gentle, humble, who says that the yoke and the work that he has for us is easy and light. What we just read is Jesus telling us that we are made for work that is equally paired with rest that it is easy and light. It's Shabbat and Nuach type existence. And if this is true, then Jesus is not a taskmaster. He's not Pharaoh. And the kingdom of God will look nothing, nothing like Egypt. Jesus is the God of Israel come down to bring rest for the souls of humankind. And remember, there's no sign of audience. So these words are timeless and they're active. There's rest for your souls right now through Jesus. And Jesus knows how desperate and needy humans are for rest because he knows that the need for rest is actually not new. Look where Jesus gets the idea for rest from your souls from in Jeremiah 6.16. It says this, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they, being Israel, said, we will not walk in it. 
Jesus finds it completely appropriate to reference the same prophet who accuses Israel of disregarding, his, or disregarding the Sabbath. And if you're a Jewish reader, you're fully aware that Jeremiah's attempt to call Israel to turn their hearts back to God are falling on deaf ears. Jesus, by quoting this, sees his same situation, his same encounters with the Pharisees um, that were, are going to reject him and say, we don't want to do this, we will not fall. But yet at the same time, he's saying, but there are some who will hear this and they will want to follow. It's also noteworthy to say that the word here for good, in terms of good paths, is the same word used in Genesis 1 to describe what God deems as good, tov. Coincidence? I think not. There's almost unanimous scholarly consensus that point to this whole phrase about ancient paths and the good ways um, are in rare biblical company because they only appear three times in the entire Bible, and all of them deal directly with rest and keeping the Sabbath. So, our whole adventure through Genesis 1 and 2 was not in vain because it sounds like that the writer of these texts is actually reflecting on Genesis 1 and saying, this is your existence, this is your life, Shabbat and Nuach, to keep and to work God's world, yes, but also to be fruitful and multiply and do it out of the abundance of rest. Jesus is saying that his ministry and rest are the ancient paths. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. He's inviting people to start partying and celebrating on the Sabbath like new creations just here. It's just here. It's already arrived. So stop and think about how crazy this is. Every time that Sabbath is mentioned, any of the four Gospels, Eden-like stuff starts happening. People get healed. Food comes out of nowhere. There's always some variety of teaching that ends with grumpy religious people always trying to tell Jesus that he, being God, can't just let the Garden of Eden just show up unannounced. And Jesus responds by emphatically claiming that the son of Adam is the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the seed of the woman, the true human. I am the true Adam who will let the Garden of Eden break into my good world whenever I say it will. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It's time for the captives to be set free. It's time for the earth to be healed. It's time for rest. It makes me emotional to read these because there's something in me that breaks and longs for this to be true for me and for you. It's not emotionalism. It's weariness. It's desperation. It's a need to invite Jesus to come and let that be true of our circumstances today, right now. It's also so much more comfortable to cry when you don't have a ton of people looking at you. <sighs> so wherever you're coming from or whatever your background is regarding the Sabbath, this is the ground that we stand on. Jesus is saying that the Jubilee year has come. It's time for a reset. It's time to rest. It's time to party. It's time to get in on the Messianic kingdom and get in on all of its ways. Jesus is saying that if he's revealed himself as God and Messiah, then he is choosing Sabbath as the signal to all people. This is why often the gospel writers choose to interchange the words save and heal when Jesus performs a miracle on Sabbath. Jesus is saying if there's a deep connection with being saved and being healed, because being healed or rescued or saved or however you want to put it has basically meant that Jesus has re-Edenized you. You have been reset and made new for your intended Eden-like design. This is what Jesus meant when he constantly told people, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Heaven and earth are beginning to fold in on themselves, and God's kingdom is taking root through ordinary people like you and me. 
But that's not all. Did you know that Jesus was actually raised on the eighth day for a specific purpose? His death takes place at the end of the week, and then his crucified body actually laid completely restfully, even though in death through Shabbat, and then he was resurrected on the eighth day. Jesus rose from the dead and became and inaugurated the eighth day as the first day of new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. And because of resurrection, we have a hope in God's promises of a future rest. We're not there yet. We're like Israel in the wilderness, where we're struggling, and there's pain, and there's exhaustion, and we're hurried. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh-day rest, Jesus is inviting us to experience a taste of real rest right now by following him. This is why Sabbath is a rehearsal for eternity. Within the rabbinical tradition, Sabbath is imagined as a groom coming out to meet his bride. Every Sabbath is a proposal that one day God will redeem his world. So three years ago, yesterday, Julia and I uh, got engaged on top of a mountain in Virginia. I bought a ring. I waited for her to arrive. I got down on one knee, popped the question, and put a ring on her finger. Now, we weren't married in that moment. The ring represented a promise that we are going to be together forever. We weren't married yet, but that the future we were imagining together and the life that we were moving towards and living towards is the moment that is guaranteed and sealed by the symbol of the ring. We're going to get married. So when the disciples gather with Jesus on the Sabbath and he gives them a new way to envision the Sabbath and Passover meal before his crucifixion, he was in the most Jewish way saying... Every Sabbath is a proposal from God that this new creation community is a sign of the world to come. So do it in remembrance of me, because these meals and Sabbath days are symbolic glimpses and rehearsals for eternity, for the re-Edenization of the world. What it means for us is that the reality we are living towards right now is for a marriage ceremony when heaven and earth are reunited, where Jesus and his bride come together and all will be put right in the world. When justice will blanket the earth, he will wipe every tear from every eye, erase every disease, heal every wound. He will be our God. We will be his people. And it will be as God has always intended from the beginning to be just like Eden. God gets his family back. See the book of Revelation for the full story. Last book of the New Testament, highly recommend you read it. But here's what you can bank on if you practice Sabbath. Living this way will revolutionize not just one day of your week, but it will affect every day of your week. Walter Brueggemann, the scholar I quoted earlier, says that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Because once you let the Sabbath mess with you for one day, your whole schedule starts to orbit around Sabbath. Instead of controlling time to fit your agenda, God's time controls you and shows you that your agenda is no longer the priority. You begin rehearsing eternity like you never thought you would have before. So Sabbath becomes the day where, you, uh, where your priority is no longer email but rest. It's the day when the frenzy of the news cycle becomes a footnote on your day of worship. It's the day when laughing, eating, praying, walking, meeting with friends, hiking, spending unhurried time with your kids, napping, making love with your spouse, all become activities to single and repopulate your imagination for the new heavens and the new earth. So yeah, maybe you turn your phone off. Maybe you don't check your favorite blog. Maybe you slow down and you welcome inconveniences. Maybe you pick up a new hobby. Maybe you take a long nap. Maybe you pray longer than you normally would just because. Maybe you sit by a window and look out to the sky with no agenda, no timer. I don't know what the Holy Spirit 
was doing in your heart, but it was such a good reminder while putting this teaching together to remind me that I need a day of the week where this sort of Eden Sabbath-like existence is routine. And it's not just because I'm Jewish. It's because I get weary. It's because I need a day of the week where I'm reminded what it's like to be human. I need a day in my week where it's dedicated to delighting in the abundance of God's mercy in Jesus, that I don't lack anything that our good shepherd is not bent on productivity, but is actually more concerned about welcoming us into rest. Remember our two words, Shabbat and Nuach. To practice restfulness, we must be a community who first practice Shabbating and ceasing. We must cease before we can settle in. So this is why I can say with complete confidence that we are not asking you to add more things to your already busy schedule. We are asking you to do less and to make space for something we believe is holy, and a stepping stone for many of us to be liberated from the endless flurry of production, consumption, busyness, and even for some anxiety. Sabbath rest will be the moment in your week to subtract and slow down. So, without hesitation, every time someone already asks me, um, so, uh, what, what do I do? <laughs> Excellent question. I'm glad you asked. So, in my best attempts to invite you to join me on the spiritual journey towards restfulness and Sabbathing, here are four best practices that you can, new, can uh, use right now. And I've taken them from Pete Scazzaro's book, uh, Emotionally Healthy, Healthy Spirituality, and so you can go and look those up. But also, just know that there's, there are, I looked it up, there are 20,000 books on Sabbath on Amazon. So, this is not the only one. This is more of a, here's best practices. Here's from the highest level, the four things I'd recommend uh, doing if you have nowhere, no idea to start. And just also note today as well, when I share everything, that what this looks like for you might be very different than what Pete is doing, from what I'm doing, what Joe and Julie are doing, from uh, John Mark Comer, whoever else that you're reading. This will probably differ. But I think these four things are a fantastic way to be able to start. So number one, Stop Shabbat. You need to stop working. Turn your Slack and your email off. It's the best way to ensure that you're not tempted to work and that your boss cannot get a hold of you. Put your laptop in a closet if you have to. I actually do this at home. I love putting my laptop in a closet and forgetting it exists for a day. Disconnect yourself. New York Times best-selling author Anita D'Ament says that uh, describes the Sabbath in her book Living a Jewish Life as something that must be chosen. Sabbath must be something that is chosen, and I think the same is true for us. If we do not choose Sabbath, we do not put it in our calendars, it will not happen. We must stop and we must cease in order to begin, and for some of you, this means planning unstructured time for your Sabbath. No plans, no hurrying, no agenda, slowly moving from one activity to another. Number two is rest or nuach your other favorite Hebrew word, you need to rest. And what rest means is not what gets you into low battery mode like your phone. It means that we are actively finding ways to let our bodies, our minds, and our souls catch back up to us. For some of you, this might be sleeping in. For others of you, like me, this means getting up early. For some of you, this means working out and others taking a day off. To settle in means that we begin to find ways to reconnect with God. For our family, Julia and I, this means that we light Shabbat candles on Friday night, say the traditional Jewish blessings for Shabbat, blessing the wine and the food, and welcoming the Sabbath. And this sets the tone for the whole Sabbath, that it's not just a day off, but an opportunity to settle into a seventh-day rest. Again, for our family, this means that we ride bikes, because for us, that's really restful. We read books, articles, essays, and large portions of Scripture. 
We take an hour of silence just to sit with God and not interact with each other. We try to invite other people over during Shabbat or for Shabbat meals, at least part of it, because we found that hosting is a way that we actually settle in. My point is that there is freedom in finding what is restful for you, and you have the opportunity to try many things to see what works. My only encouragement is to avoid doing the things that ultimately could be done on the other six days. So for some of you, dishes, no way. Checking the mail, nope. Checking your email, not a chance. Online shopping, not so much. We settle in by disconnecting and acting like we live in the new Eden. Number three, delight. This one's also a bit vague on purpose, but the heart of it is to uh, encourage you to find something and experience a rush of dopamine over food or spending time with someone that you care about or going on a walk and getting a cup of coffee and sitting by the window and savoring every single drop of your espresso. What's delightful to you? What reminds you of the seventh day rest? What reminds you that God's kingdom is actually taking shape right now? Whatever it is, whatever brings you delight, do that. Maybe you're praying slowly, maybe reading slowly, maybe moving at an incredibly unhurried, unfrantic pace. Make sure that you get out and just marvel at creation. Posture yourself if delight in six days of grinding work. Make sure that you make space to find gratitude. Even if you wouldn't identify as someone who's very cheery on the outside, carve out time to delight and practice gratitude. It's the day to rehearse the new Eden. And number four, and then we will close. Make sure you contemplate. Take time to read scripture and pray. Take time to think about the people around you and the community of faith that you're a part of. In Jewish tradition, there is no part of Sabbath tradition that rivals the, uh, the, the Shabbat afternoon of studying Torah. Whether it's parents and their kids, moms, dads, teenagers, hours will pass as communities sit and laugh and read and study the scriptures together over naps, in between naps, crying, prayer, long walks, all to restore and reorient their mind around Shabbat. To spend time in contemplation lets your mind run wild with imagination, and it keeps us refreshed and ever curious about the ways that God is working in our world. So I know that this may not answer all of your questions, and I'm aware of that. So here are two ways that I can help you. Number one is that in one month on March 20th, after our gathering, Laura Ripley and I are going to be holding a Sabbath lab workshop to give you time and space to be able to structure and ask questions and adjust and be able to hear from other people how they have come to understand and practice Sabbath rhythms. So that allows you four weeks to be able to practice a rhythm or start something or begin to see what works and what doesn't. We'll have more announcements on this in the future, but just to give you a heads up. The second way is that I would be happy to help. If you want to talk to me about Sabbath rhythms or the theology of it or practices or what can I, can't I do or whatever that is, I would be happy to talk to you. I will stay after. Feel free to talk to me. Or you can also ask Joel or Julie. I'm sure they would love to be able to help answer any questions that you have about the practice of Sabbathing. So by way of closing, I want to share with you that I have a lot of hope. I'm hopefully curious about what it would look like for some of us in this room and watching at home, and those of you who fell asleep, and you'll listen to this later, to practice Sabbath rest between now and our next Sunday gathering. I'm hopefully curious about what it would be like if we became a community who both affirmed the divine wisdom of the scriptures and subverted the system that claws at the back of our hearts to be restless and endlessly productive. I got curious this week and excited in prayer, asking God to lead some of us to practice this and take rest seriously, myself included. 
Because rest cannot be the reward once we've finished everything. If this is the case, then Sabbath rest is not something to be received as a gift, but something that must be earned and controlled. You see, Sabbath is when we begin to recognize that God's sovereignty can be practiced, not just through words or prayers, but with action. And he gifts it to us through the invitation of restfulness, of ceasing and settling in. Jesus offers rest. And we can rehearse eternity right now by taking communion and by remembering. Jesus saying what his body and blood represent is the new creation. If you didn't get a little cup of juice and wafer in it, uh, put your hand up unashamedly and we'll get one to you if you want. Um, In the back, we're going to have people who are willing to pray for you. It does not need to be about Sabbath. Uh, It can truly be about anything. But the point of them is to symbolically represent that God is with you and he cares that he loves, that he wants to speak to you, to feel near, to break into your life in a meaningful way. You don't need to share any specifics. You can simply just ask for prayer, and they will pray for you. So let's move into a time and a space where we get to respond to God's seventh-day rest and worship him. Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who gives us the gift of Sabbath rest, Jesus, your rest is at hand, and your invitation to come and find rest for our souls is found in you. Come and be with us and move our souls towards rest. Help us be refreshed in only a way that you can. Help us become the kinds of people you would have us be, people known and founded on Sabbath rest. May your name be blessed forever. Amen.